European Union has not treated us well. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream, the podcast on Europe and its political extremes. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now, covering politics and the economy. I'm Tom. I've been a lobbyist and spin doctor in Brussels for many years, and I've spent the last decade fighting climate change. In this episode, we speak with Mujtaba Rahman, the Europe director for the Eurasia Group, on how the far right is poised to infiltrate democratic decision-making in Brussels. We also pay our respects to Pavel Adamovich, the murdered mayor of Gdansk, who is the latest victim of the climate of hate in countries like Poland, where nationalist populists are in power. First, with Brexit still looming, Tom and I say good riddance to two far-right British members of the European Parliament we like the least. Like many of the nationalist populist lawmakers elected to the Parliament, they can be eccentric and obnoxious. But they also have closely collaborated across Europe, and, to listen to them, even made friends with each other in recent years. So, Tom, now that British members of the European Parliament aren't standing for election in May because of Brexit, we think think aren't standing for election in May, let's take a moment to reflect on our least favorite among them. Who's yours? Look, it's a high bar. But today I'm going to go with Dan Hannan. Dan Hannan? Yeah, Daniel Hannan. He was born in Peru, um, has been a committed Eurosceptic since he was at university. And despite never having sat as an MP in the UK Parliament, he has been very influential on many aspects of the events and policies that have led to the Brexit referendum and the current appalling mess that is UK politics. He's been in the European Parliament for 17 years. He's a disciple of libertarian economist Friedrich Hayek, regularly appears on right-wing TV and radio in the US. Notably, he was suggesting that the UK NHS was a socialist construct that put the power of life and death in the hands of the state. You don't like this guy. I really don't like this guy at all. In the European Parliament, he drove the UK Conservatives out of the centre-right EPP. He's suggested that the powers granted to the President of the European Parliament are akin to the totalitarian powers granted to Hitler in 1933. And the political group of which he is the Secretary General, the Alliance of Conservatives and Reformists in Europe, has been forced to pay back almost half a million euros it spent on conferences in Miami and Kampala and various other expenses. Now, I'm going to play you a video from a Dan Hannon series of videos that appear on the internet and uh, really? on, his, yeah, on his webpage. We're told that the European Union has to be a big entity in order to hold its own and be prosperous and succeed. Do you know, if size were the key to success, China would be wealthier than Hong Kong. And Indonesia would be wealthier than Singapore. And for that matter, the European Union would be wealthier than Switzerland. Actually, the richest people in the world tend to live in little microstates in Monaco, in Liechtenstein, in Brunei. Just like he completely he makes his own point, right? Yeah, the richest people in the world live in tiny microstates, right? Which are 
tax havens, where those people are ungoverned and unregulated, and where essentially they can hoard all of the cash that all of those poor people in the big countries haven't got, right? What this man is basically projecting here is that the world should be based on massive wealth inequality, that the world can be run by fantastically rich people and screw everybody else. I know it's not really the done thing to talk about people's appearance, but I mean, how do you feel about his look? Yeah, Dan Annan is, a, I mean, he's a very peculiar man. You can hear from the delivery, this kind of velvety soft tone that he, that he adopts, the staring slightly robotic eyes. He basically tries to kind of portray and put forward this idea that he's this kind of philosopher king, you know, this kind of you know, history-focused writer and journalist. doesn't even describe himself as an MEP on his website. describes himself as a writer and journalist who's been an MEP for a bit. And he's written like nine books most of which are on the subject of how to pull off Brexit. The real imperial delusions here are not with the Brexiteers, but with those who still think in terms of these massive 1950s blocks. The tide of history is moving towards self-determination, and Brexit is moving with that tide. Ah! So... Looks to me like he's standing in the European Parliament there, either in Strasbourg or in Brussels. He is standing in the European Parliament, indeed, where he has spent, you know, 17 years being paid, getting access to large chunks of money, some of which he's had to pay back for not paying, for not spending properly. Or at least his political grouping is going to right. have to pay it back. He has, he has used, indeed, it's not him personally, he has used the infrastructure of the European Union to undermine the concept of the European Union for many, many, many years. And he's been pretty effective. Of course, the future of the world will be set by interstate cooperation. The European Union is comparable with China or America on that basis. You split it up into lots of little pieces, it completely loses that power. Who's your least favourite British MEP? I've got to say, it's Janice Atkinson. Right. Tell us a little about Janice. She is a member of the European Parliament for Southeast England. She was with the UK Independence Party, the far-right British party, but she was suspended from the party after allegations about her expenses that led to a police investigation over possible fraud. She denied wrongdoing, and she wasn't ever charged. When she's not dehumanizing migrants and denigrating feminists, she's actively supporting people from the global alt-right, like Lauren Southern. We talked about Southern in our Migrating from the Truth episode, and these are the people who promote white culture. She then joined the Europe of Nations and Freedom, the European Parliament group created by Marine Le Pen, the leader of the French far right, and Heert Wilders, the leader of the Dutch far right. Atkinson's decision to join this group unlocked millions of euros in EU taxpayer money for this Europe of Nations and Freedom group. That's because parliamentary groups are entitled to these levels of funding as long as they have members from at least seven member states, and it was Atkinson's British passport that fulfilled those criteria. That's helping pay both for her obnoxious activities and those of the ENF. Now, I'm just going to play you a little video just to give you a taste of what she's been up to in the European Parliament. All right, man, go at it. 
Welcome to Brussels. Uh, this is another one of my interviews for Make Europe Great Again TV. I'm Janice Atkinson, MEP for the South East of England and Vice President of the Europe of Nations and Freedom Group. So today I've got with me the leader of Fulbrison Party, a UK party that is really growing in the UK, and its leader is Anne-Marie Waters. Welcome, Anne-Marie, to the belly of the beast. It's an absolute pleasure. Look at this. Wow. Yeah. It's impressive, isn't it? It is impressive. It is impressive. It is impressive. Yeah. My first time here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah. So I'm going to stop it there. Well, like, what was that? Yeah. Yeah. So Janice Atkinson hosts an online TV show called Make Europe Great TV. It's an obvious echo of Trump's Make America Great Again. And it looks properly professional as it's shot from inside, inside the European Parliament's very public open plan studios. The videos say, but it's in very small print, that the movement for Europe of Nations and Freedom gets money from the European taxpayer. And in this video, we see that one of her most recent guests was Anne-Marie Waters, a far-right extremist from Ireland, but living in Britain, who's been part of Pegida UK, which is this anti-Islam organization named after the German group Pegida, or patriotic Europeans against the Islamization of the Occident. You can hear on the video Anne-Marie Waters being sort of wowed by being in such a fancy venue. And with all credit to the European Parliament's audiovisual service, like, the production value is pretty high. I mean, this looks, you know, it looks like daytime TV. Here's another interesting Janice Atkinson video. Because if you thought that members of the European far right actively plotting across national borders to subvert the European Union is some kind of paranoid delusion, well, listen to this. Us, we're a very cohesive group, uh, headed up by Marine Le Pen before she went to the National Parliament and Salvini, etc. We really supported each other um, and we would go around as a cohesive group. And that's what the sort of British media and the European media suddenly dawned on them, that Actually, do you know what? They're just not a political alliance. They're friends as well. They didn't get that because the socialists are not friends. They're stabbing each other in the back. The Merkel's lot and the British Conservatives all hate each other. Um, so what they liked about the, the, what they found shocking about us is that we actually liked each other. And you might- Isn't it cute? Suddenly they're all besties doing European city trips. Of course, another thing that this lot have in common is frequent run-ins with the law especially when it comes to suspicions of financial wrongdoing and allegations of hate speech. She's hanging out with a network of people actually joining up all of these various different forces who are a bunch of nationalist, racist, deeply misogynist people trying to drive a wedge through the middle of any civilized society. And it seems like they may even have time for the odd pajama party in Brussels. Um, I never bought a house over there. I never rented a house. I, I only stay in hotels. In fact, I stay with a friend of mine from the Swedish Democrats when I go and I stay on, the, on her sofa. I go there to cause trouble. I go there to vote against them. I'm in trouble, I do cause. So cool. Turns out there's couch surfing for crypto fascists. <laughs> That's a smartphone app I'd want to avoid. <laughs> and by the way, make no mistake about those Sweden Democrats. The name sounds pretty harmless, right? But they are Sweden's far-right anti-migrant party with roots in white nationalism. She also talks about Steve Bannon and his plans, which seem to be moving forward, to create a base in Brussels to fight the May 2019 European Parliament elections. 
The idea is to help the European far right with polling and messaging and so on. Bannon, of course, is credited with masterminding Donald Trump's presidential campaign that used highly targeted campaign ads based on psychological profiles for maximum effectiveness. So maybe what he wants to do in Europe is similar, but it's all still pretty murky for now. And you might have read a bit about the press about sort of, you know, Bannon, uh, Steve Bannon coming over, who I actually know, have met um, subsequently, um, I knew him in America as well, um, an American sort of coming over and trying to build this movement. The movement is something over there. We are the movement. The ENF is the movement. The Salvini is the Le Pen's FPO, etc. Um, if Bannon wants to help, then that's fine, but we will not be part of the movement. So what she's saying is, we've got this. We have this network. We are all joined up. We've got the Austrian far right. We've got the Italian far right. We've got the French far right. We've got the Dutch far right. We've got the British far right. Like, there is a European far right movement, and we're on a roll. You know, Bannon can, if he happens to turn up, you know, fine, but we don't need him. Yeah. It would be interesting to know whether or not that line is also appears in meetings like between her and Bannon directly or between that group and Bannon directly. I think he's actually got the outright in America has professionalized itself to an extent that the Europeans haven't yet. So I would imagine they are trying to suck up some of those lessons. But also there's some pride here. There are a lot of people in Europe who might have a certain sympathy for some of the views that she's espousing, but don't like the idea that Americans are coming in to run our politics. And so that's a line that these people have got to walk really, really carefully. I think it's pretty interesting that she was there with Trump in Trump Tower during the night of the election and partying on with the American alt-right. You know, Brexit started it. And then we had President Trump. Who mm. Actually, I was in um, New York on mm. election night. I was in Trump Tower at a little party underneath. And, um, you know, that's quietly sort of happening. So... There are always going to be huge tensions between the global far right or even the European far right. But there's also this level of cohesiveness that we ignore at our peril. Totally. And, you know, Bannon has been super clear on this point. He constantly talks about the need to make this a global effort. As we've talked about before, it repositions politics from the standard spectrum of left to right to this kind of elite, nameless elite, you know, usually represented by George Soros or somebody else against the people they want to split and divide which guarantees that they will create political structures through which we are completely unable to face the very very collective challenges down the road mushtaba Rahman is the europe director for the eurasia group a political risk consultancy. Investors, companies, and institutions call on the Eurasia Group to measure the risks of doing business across the globe. At the height of the debt crisis in Greece, Midge, as he likes to be called, correctly forecasts that Europe's political leaders would not let the Euro currency union collapse. That helped burnish his reputation as a go-to analyst on Europe. He's also a familiar figure in Brussels, where he previously worked at the European Commission's Directorate General for Economic and Financial Affairs, and where he got to know the EU's decision-making machine inside out. He's now acutely worried about how far-right nationalist populists 
may soon be in a more powerful position than ever to throw sand in the gears of that machine. I first asked him to gauge the risk of the European Parliament elections scheduled for late May. I think I think it's important to look at the big picture as we head into 2019 and think about European elections in the context of that bigger picture. So first and most important is what's happening in France, where you have a leader who was elected on a European mandate to reform domestically, but also to renew the European project and to really break ground again for the centrist parties. Emmanuel Macron has been just utterly sunk by the Gilets jaunes protest, which has really come out of nowhere in a, in, a, in a way that has undermined the integrity of his presidency in a very, very fundamental way. Now, that's a problem more broadly for Europe, because if you look at the other large member states, the UK is obviously on its way out. Angela Merkel has not been in a position to provide leadership at the European level for some time, because there has been both a question of succession but also the the drag from her original position on the 2015 migration crisis that she's never really never really managed to get away from that has really undermined her position within the government and there's still a question of you know M- Merkel transitioning out and 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 a new era frankly in domestic german politics that prevents berlin exercising leadership and then of course in italy a eurosceptic government combining the two extremes, the hard left, as well as the, 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 the far right, in a coalition government. So I'm talking here, obviously, about the Northern League and Five Star that are competing with each other in the context of a coalition to bolster their polling and their standing and their ultimate electoral mandate, you know, ahead of what we think will probably be an early election this year. That's the big four member states. So... At the national level, I, th- I think it's very, very difficult to see meaningful leadership coming from any of these countries. Now, in that context where the council is hamstrung, European elections take on more importance. And they're also, I think, consequential in 2019 because the trend we're seeing at the national level will manifest at the European one, meaning the two, the two dominant parties that have traditionally owned and, and and run, frankly, the European Parliament are, are going to lose a significant number of seats. I'm talking here about the European People's Party and the Socialists. They're going to lose seats to more populist-leaning parties, I'd say both on the right, in terms of the anti-immigration right, but also to the anti-austerity left. And that, I think, in combination with what's happening in the Council makes European elections much more interesting and much more consequential than they've really ever been, frankly. 2014, no one really cared. Turnout was low. The implications were not meaningful. That's not the case this year, I think. This year, the elections are probably the biggest risk for the EU. What is the new European Parliament going to look like? If you take the current Parliament, I'd say it's roughly at a 70-30 split, 70 mainstream parties, 30 populists, I think that moves to around 60-40 in the next parliament. That, that's broadly where I'd see the split. What I think we can say is the mainstream parties have a fairly significant buffer, you know, 250 seats, two, 250 to 270, that kind of number. That means it's highly unlikely 
populist parties will garner a majority. So that's not the risk. The risk, rather, is with increased numbers, we will also probably see more effective organisation at the European level, meaning a willingness of populist parties to cooperate and work together in Brussels in a way that we've not seen before. I mean, you have strategic competition between populists, you have different ideologies, you have personality conflicts. For all of the above, we've never really seen meaningful cooperation at the European level between populist parties. That's not going to be the case this time. Now, I don't think they will necessarily coalesce into one political family, but organisation can be informal, cooperating in different committees on the plenary floor, Salvini talking to Orban, meeting Marine Le Pen, meeting with Kaczynski in Poland. I mean, these discussions suggest there is a willingness to explore the possibility of cooperation. And I don't think that cooperation needs to be formal for it to be meaningful in terms of its implications. It's, it's sort of significant that the British won't be part of the new European Parliament in a number of ways, but one of them is that UKIP, which is, of course, the British far-right, won't block alliances with Marine Le Pen's French far-right party, as they did in the past, because of that party's historic anti-Semitism. Does that facilitate...? It does. So so there is a a level of cooperation that will be facilitated by virtue of the fact UKIP will no longer be sitting in the European Parliament. So it does create the opportunity for some of these European populists to cooperate in a way they weren't able to in the previous parliament. So there is some opportunity for that. However, you do see strategic competition between the populist parties, competing ideologies, different priorities, and even at the personality level. You know, does Orban really like Kaczynski? No, he does not, because he thinks he's a provincial politician. Orban is a big thinker. What is the personal relationship between Salvini and Le Pen? These issues also matter for cooperation at the European level. I mean, Orban and Kurtz both want to be the face-off, the moves to reform Europe's approach to migration, because there's a lot of votes sitting on the back off you know, an outcome there that delivers on the concerns of European of European citizens, right? So you, you do see the narrative of liberals versus populists is a little misleading because the populists are among themselves divided. So in this new dispensation, what kind of damage could these far-right parties and nationalist populists do if they expand their influence within the European institutions beyond the parliament? Right. So this is, this is a great question because I think the risk is exactly, this, this is exactly the point, that it's the parliament working in conjunction with the commission and the council that creates the problem. I think what we will see really for the first time in the commission is populist governments, here I'm thinking about the Italians, certainly the Hungarians, the Poles, potentially the Austrians, one can, one can debate the position of Kurtz, but, but at least three governments, potentially Austria as well, sending populist commissioners to Brussels to sit in the European Commission's top decision-making body, the, the College of Commissioners. Now, that is 
that is a very, very new situation. I mean, essentially what we're seeing is populists gaining a foothold within these institutions. Now, that has been the case in the European Parliament, but as I would say, not to the same extent in terms of numbers and not to the same extent in terms of organisation. What's happening with the Commission is completely unprecedented. I think what will happen what will happen in the Commission, what will happen to the Commission, will be completely unprecedented. To have a set of populist, quasi-populist commissioners privy to all of the deal-making, all of the messy ways in which Europe is governed will give them a huge amount of fodder to further undermine the project from within. I mean, governing Europe is a very, very, very messy business. Some of the deals that are done between these political families, between uh, different heads of state at the highest levels are very, very, very messy compromises. Think about Italy and its recent exit from the risk of an excessive deficit procedure. I mean, how was that deal done? This is messy deal making. And it plays to the narrative of the populist parties that these institutions are undemocratic. Um, they, they make deals at the highest level that absolutely impinge upon the sovereignty of member states. Now, if you are a commissioner sitting in this body that is making and signing off on some of these decisions, it gives you a tremendous opportunity, I think, to to further bolster your narrative, but also to undermine the decision-making from within. So that's that, that's one, I think, big, big risk. Remember, you've got populist governments in the council. I think there will be some commissioners that will now be more populist and you'll have a more populist European Parliament. And the combination of those three institutions working together means from within the EU's institutions are beginning to be undermined. Not, not perhaps in a, in, a, in a fundamental way, but what we're beginning to see is incrementally over time the ability of these institutions to function there's a, there's a risk that that becomes more and more difficult over time and i think we're beginning 2019 will mark the beginning of that trend i think that's how to think about that's how to think about the risk the narrative that we're getting used to is one that says that the far right and the nationalist populists no longer want to destroy the european union they no longer want to do Frexits or Erexits or what was the Italian one? Itexit. Itexit. Are there other exits that we should know about? I mean, people talk about Hexit, What's which is a Hungarian referendum on EU ah. membership over the medium term. We, uh, Hexit. Hexit. Which Sounds is, like uh, it has a witch involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, that's a good one. So, so I, I, I agree with your argument that populists have had to rethink their agenda and their narrative. We've we've certainly seen that in light of Brexit. I mean, exiting Europe is painful, it's costly, the outcomes are not going to be as beneficial as being a member state. And I think that has definitely been socialised by the likes of the National Rally, Marine Le Pen, even with the League and Salvini. You, know, you can argue, I think, the same for the Euro area. Um, Salvini was was on a collision course with Europe and ultimately backed down. And I think part of that reasoning was driven by his desire to avoid a big crisis ahead of European elections. Um, There's a a large business constituency that supports the League. I don't think they wanted to see 
a big economic crisis in Italy. We, we have seen a big change in the narrative. You're right. It's no longer about exit. It's no longer about leaving your the EU or the euro area. But it's, there's still a narrative that is corrosive and it's more subtle. It's, it's essentially about, I think, over the long term, demonstrating that these institutions are incapable of delivering, that they don't function, that they serve no real purpose. And of course, one way to facilitate that outcome is to undermine, to begin to undermine these institutions from within, which is what I think we're going to begin to see from 2019. If, if you think about the policy areas that are meaningful for Europe this year, trade agreement with the UK that will need to be negotiated once we've left, the need to potentially negotiate a mini bilateral trade agreement with the US to avoid the imposition of auto tariffs, conclusion of the multi-annual financial framework, the next EU budget, further fleshing out the euro area reform agenda, developing a new set of rules to govern migration. All of these areas are contentious already, given divides between north and south, east and west, but building consensus on these policies in a context where you have a more populist European Parliament, where you have a more fragmented college of commissioners, where you have a council with no real leadership, given what's happening in Germany, France and elsewhere, will make building consensus and making progress on these issues much, much more difficult. So you end up in a situation where Europe and its institutions are simply incapable of delivering solutions to the problems that matter for EU citizens, right? You're in a, you're in a world where these institutions are simply incapable of delivering. If, if the institutions are incapable of crafting solutions to these problems, then of course it will undermine their legitimacy. Now that's the narrative I think Salvini is working with. This is not a sprint for him, this is a marathon. This is over the long term about showing that Europe is incapable of delivering and that sovereignty should return to Italy. He's patient, I think he's playing a long game and I think Orban is of a similar ilk, right? That's the game I think, that's the game I think we're playing now. Of course on the other side you have Macron and the Liberals who look to Europe to deliver solutions that are impossible at the at the national level for one country, right? Where you need um, action at the at the European level, you know, cooperation among many states to foster solutions to some of these problems that a single country is incapable of delivering by itself. But if you're a corporate and you're looking to see where in the future policy making that's going to affect your business is going to be happening. Are you starting to think, okay, a return to nation states and national policy making? So I, I don't necessarily think we see more decision making at the national level than we've currently seen. This, this is simply about a situation where you're essentially in a, a state of paralysis, where the European institutions are incapable of delivering the solution and national governments are equally incapable of delivering the solution. And the question is, in that context, do national governments then use institutions in Brussels as a scapegoat to further bolster their own standing? Now, as I said, you know, these are this is a long term. These are long term structural issues. This is not about Italy leaving the EU over the course of the next one or two years, but over the course of 10 or 15 years, 
over the course of 20 years, will Hungary still be an EU member state? I mean, these are, these are long-term structural trends. And unless these institutions are capable of being responsive, of delivering solutions that matter for European citizens, then of course their legitimacy will be further undermined at the national level and leaders will seek to use that to further bolster their own their own standing and their grip on power. And I think that trend will, it's something of a vicious circle, obviously, but that trend will further reinforce itself. Pavel Adamovich stood out as a liberal voice and an advocate of rights for LGBT people and for minorities in Poland. On January 13th, Adamovich, the mayor of Gdansk for the past two decades, was stabbed in the chest in front of thousands of people during a charity concert. He died in hospital several hours later. The assailant, who'd been previously jailed for violent attacks, told the charity crowd that he blamed Adamovich's former political party, Civic Platform, for his time in prison. Donald Tusk, the president of the European Council, who previously led the Civic Platform, called Adamovich a European who stood for solidarity and freedom. Yaroslav Kaczynski, who leads the Law and Justice Party that has done so much to take Poland in an illiberal direction, called the attack criminal, apparently to underline how the barbarity had no connection with Polish politics. Whether to attribute political motives to the assailant still was being debated at the time of this recording. But according to Adamowicz's friends, the mayor's progressive, pro-European views had turned him into a marked man amid a wave of hateful and violent rhetoric. This happened on the background of a relentless public campaign in government media, in speeches of government politicians in Poland, all of which labeled Paweł Adamowicz as public enemy number one, along with three or four other people. That's Roland Freudenstein, the policy director of the Wilfred Martin Center for European Studies, a center-right think tank. He spoke on the sidelines of a meeting of the Defending Democracy Group in Brussels. I worked with Paweł Adamowicz about 20 years ago on a couple of projects. Now, Kaczynski called the murder of Adamowicz criminal. I would say that's a good thing, but it's not that surprising, and it's not what I would like to hear optimally in an ideal world from Kaczynski, which is that it was political. That's the point. Criminal is not enough. It's political. After the murder... Polish state media rubbed salt into the wounds of the opposition. We close the show with a few words from Martin Michelski, who was at the same Defending Democracy event. Michelski speaks for the Open Dialogue Foundation, a human rights group in Warsaw that's in a standoff with Polish authorities over the degradation of the rule of law there. Uh, what the TV state news did was uh, air uh, a segment uh, rightfully blaming the death, the murder on uh, hate speech uh, and on the growing campaign of, of hate and violence in the public sphere. But then what they showed as examples uh, were actually numerous 
instances of the opposition of the civic platform, uh, very often actually taken out of context, but they of course uh, omitted any example of uh, either uh, the government uh, party, law and justice, or any right-wing um, politicians or, or, or journalists uh, doing the same, usually at a far greater scale, and Polish state TV news basically blamed the whole situation on the opposition on the day of the murder. So we were really shocked to, to see that. That's EU Scream for this week. You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at EU Screams, and like us on Facebook. You'll also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening.